1: Before we talk about protests in Iran, I want to tell you how those protests started. With a young woman's decision to visit Tehran. Her name was Masa Amini. She traveled with her brother. She was reportedly coming out of a subway station when she was spotted by Iran's morality police and then escorted into a van. They thought she was dressed immodestly. Maybe a wisp of hair was out of place. Maybe her hijab was drooping. What happens then
0: is very disputed, um, but what ended up is that she died. So she was brought in, and then she died.
1: And this is a 22-year-old woman. This
0: is a 22-year-old woman with no pre-existing health conditions.
1: I asked Gisunia to tell me Masa's story. She's a human rights attorney. She's Iranian-American. She says getting arrested like this is not all that uncommon. It's not uncommon for people to die in custody in Iran either. But what is uncommon is what happened next.
0: Then there was a photo of her in a hospital bed looking beat up, you know, on a ventilator, sort of an air device to help her breathe. And it was just absolutely shocking to see this young, beautiful woman in the hospital bed like that. And that's the photo that went viral. Essentially, you know, there were medical doctors who were examining, albeit from afar, were examining the photos, noticed that she had blood pooled around her ears, that she had the signs of a concussion, and no 22-year-old should be in that position, and certainly not because she just showed a few strands of hair.
1: The way I've seen this photo get passed around is as a pair of before and after images. There's one picture of Masa Amini looking young and vital, wearing lipstick, smiling. But next to it is a shot of her in the hospital, helpless, a piece of gauze cradling her neck.
0: I think this was just so shocking and chilling that it struck a chord and then we saw young people hit the streets.
1: In the weeks since, protests
0: have roiled Iran. I think the things that are most thrilling to me are the videos of women throwing their, you know, what is a mandatory imposed headscarf or hijab, throwing that into bonfires and dancing and feeling incredibly liberated. There's obviously a lot of incredibly violent footage as well. But I think, for me, the most iconic images are those of freedom, of joy.
1: Many of these people carry pictures of Masa Amini. Through it all, her family has been outspoken. In fact, her father gave an interview to the BBC. He told them he thinks the Iranian government is lying about his daughter's death.
0: The Iranian state tried to say that she has epilepsy. They tried to say that she suffered a heart attack and that was due to some pre-existing conditions. Her family absolutely refutes that and says that's not the case.
1: Do we know if they're safe? Can't really speak to that, but I I hope that they are. You sound worried for them.
0: Of course. I would be worried for anybody who chooses to exercise their freedom of expression in Iran.
1: Today on the show, one woman's death has led thousands of people to exercise their freedom of expression in Iran. Where will that lead? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. One thing Gisunia wanted to make sure I understood is that the Iranian struggle for women's rights is more than a century old. And protests over hijab, the modest clothing required of all women in Iran, they've been going on since the 1970s. Back then, protests were taking place in the shadow of the Iranian Revolution. Since a broad coalition had overthrown the government, it was a shock to some when Islamic fundamentalists took control. Regardless, in 1979, the new Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, began rolling back some of the limited freedom women had previously enjoyed.
0: It was all very gradual. Every day there was a new announcement about how women would be restricted either in the public space or at work. Ayatollah Khomeini, the Supreme Leader at the time, he uh, prohibited women from serving as judges. He announced that women could no longer initiate divorce proceedings. He prohibited women from serving in the army. The marriage age of women reverted back to nine, which is what it is under Islamic law. Hmm. And then on March 7th, which was on the, the eve of International Women's Day on March 8th, um, Khomeini said that women could work outside the home, but that government employed women should wear a hijab to work. And so that's really how they started to roll this out.
1: And was the reaction immediate from women?
0: yes. They responded immediately with massive demonstrations and sit-ins.
1: It's interesting because my understanding is that Iranian women are incredibly educated. And so that creates a tension that exists today where women are smart, they're educated, they know what they're saying and doing, and yet they're still restricted.
0: Yeah, there's incredibly high rates of literacy in Iran. It's a very educated population, you know, we often hear that there are more women graduates from universities than there are men in Iran. I should note that there are a lot of restrictions, though, you know, different rules that are applied to encourage women to stay at home and thrive in the family sphere, and that are not super supportive of them working or taking those skills to the workplace.
1: In the last couple of decades, protests have become just a common part of what's happening in Iran, protests over elections that are fraudulent and economic hardships. So I'm wondering how this current protest movement is different from what you've seen in 2009 or in 2017. Yeah. In 2009, there
0: was a very organized protest that, you know, a lot of people might remember the Green Movement, But it was still coloring within the lines, the institutional lines of the Islamic Republic. What do you mean when you say that? Well, the big slogan during those protests were, where is my vote? So ultimately, it was still saying, we believe in this institution, and we just want to know why our votes weren't properly counted. Because the issue at the time was this disputed presidential election in June 2009, there was a sense that the election was stolen. And I should note that election presidential and elections in Iran are neither free nor fair. The candidates are very carefully vetted.
1: I think you've called it more of a presidential selection than an election. That is absolutely the correct term. Yes. The incumbent
0: Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who I think is notorious for a lot of Western audiences for his very eccentric statements, here, Mahud Abinejad was declared the winner after barely a new vote counting. There was like a real sense of grievance. People hit the streets. Um, but that was mostly centered in Tehran and urban centers. It was very organized and it was centered around the central demand of where is our vote. So ultimately, that's still buying into the system. It was about
1: reforming what currently exists. Exactly. What we've seen since then is
0: completely different to that. So There were nationwide protests that occurred in December 2017 and January 2018. It was very clearly anti-government. Since then, there have been recurring protests and the space in time between which the protests occur keeps on shortening. So we saw the wide scale protests in November 2019. Initially, that was said to have been sparked by a spike in gas prices that occurred after the state abruptly removed subsidies on gas. But it quickly spread nationwide and quickly spread to being anti, you know, all anti-government slogans and really calling for the downfall of the Islamic
1: Republic. It sounds like you're saying things are getting just more and more intense and a little bit chaotic, even. The
0: protesters are definitely not as scared, and they're definitely willing to hit the streets and call for what they want. So We saw protests in 2020. We saw protests in 2021. And some of those protests were about other issues like water shortages in particular provinces. There's been labor union protests all throughout this time, because a lot of basically what the state has done is it's privatized some companies. I mean, they've, you know, some state owned companies have since been sold off to those who are close to the authorities and those people don't know how to run a company. And so ultimately it's mismanaged, it's looted for its assets that they then take offshore. And a lot of the laborers are not paid wages. And so we've seen recurring uh, protests over not collecting wages. And now the differentiating thing about this fate of protests is that it clearly was sparked due to a social demand And so there are no commentators that can kind of dismiss it as being due to economic concerns or something that doesn't, that's not really core to the ideology of the Islamic Republic.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I've heard it described as hijab is one of the three pillars of Iran that it's the hijab, death to Israel, and death to America. And Hijab is like the most vulnerable of those three pillars, and that's what makes these protests important to pay attention to. Would you agree with that?
0: The mandatory hijab laws are core to the Islamic Republic's repression of its populace. And it's only the most visible sign of a much more extensive gender discriminatory legal framework. Um, That includes women's testimony being worth half that of a man in a court proceeding That includes very restrictive marriage, divorce, custody, inheritance laws. So there is a very widespread system of discrimination. And I'll note that it's not only gender discrimination. The discrimination is against ethnic and religious minorities. It's against LGBTQ
1: populations. It's something that's enshrined in the law. More with my guest, Gisunia, after the break. Also, worth contextualizing Iran's political situation right now, since Iran has a new president and his election was incredibly controversial. Can you just explain how he changed the way Iran works? So, ultimately, what we have to note is that the true head of
0: state in Iran is the supreme leader and he is unelected and accountable to no one. So the presidents, in a sense, are just a sideshow. They're the person that is shipped out to the UN General Assembly to greet the world. But the true decision maker is Khamenei, the Supreme Leader. And so nothing ever really changes depending on who the president is. Things change very little, in fact, depending on who the president is. But what is notable about this president, Ibrahim Raisi, is that Although, you know, none of Iran's presidents have ever been human rights champions, to say the least. They've been very much the opposite. But this guy is actually a direct perpetrator of the killings of thousands of political prisoners in Iran's jails in 1988, which legal experts, people's tribunals, have all declared are crimes against humanity. And that's why it's quite astonishing that he's in the presidential office giving interviews to Western journalists or that he is being met with in any way as a serious figure. I mean, this guy is quite
1: literally a murderer. It has been striking to me to look at pictures of the protesters and compare and contrast them with pictures of who is actually running Iran, because the protesters are young women who look very familiar in this moment to anyone who's Out in the world, in an urban place. And the people running Iran are universally men, older men with beards. And it's hard to understand how that kind of monoculture could represent these people who are on the street
0: Absolutely. So, what we see is that essentially Gen Z is on the streets. Like, Iran has a very young
1: population.
0: You know, it's something like 80% of the country is under the age of 40, like 70 to 80%
1: of the country. That's so striking given what the government looks like. Yeah, exactly.
0: So, the government is mostly the ruling elite, they're all deeply traditional and frankly geriatric men. They are all 70 plus, more or less. The supreme leader, for instance, he's 83. He's been ruling since 1989. He is the only supreme leader that many of these young protests have ever known. And, you know, they're not happy about it.
1: It feels inevitable to me that we are going to see an incredibly harsh crackdown from the Iranian government here. And we are, of course, already hearing about people being killed in protests, dozens of people. And it really makes me wonder what can actually be done to help the people in Iran and hold the Iranian government to account. How do you think about that in this moment? Well, one
0: of the key things is that there's been concerns that the internet is gonna be completely shut off. And the background to that is that during the November 2019 protests, the Islamic Republic of Iran shut off the internet for 10 days to up to two weeks in some provinces, and that allowed them to slaughter hundreds and thousands of people under cover of internet darkness, essentially, because nobody was getting the videos to show what horrors were happening there. Unfortunately, the blackout is now happening. And so we're not getting the content that we used to. And this is really frightening.
1: I mean, have you literally seen like a flood of videos slow down to a trickle in terms of what the people you work with are seeing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the people who are collecting this information are reporting that, you know, they can't get access in the same way. There's some citizen journalist collectives and some human rights organizations that specialize in getting this kind of content and that people know to send their content to. And they say that that's slowing down.
1: Here's something I struggle with. The U.S. has tried accountability in Iran with sanctions for a long time, which has widely been seen as a failure and in fact I think part of the frustration on the part of the Iranian people is that they can't access basic goods and services because of those sanctions. So what are alternatives here? What should the US be thinking of instead or alongside those sanctions that may provide accountability while not punishing the people of Iran who are no doubt suffering?
0: So sanctions are not accountability tools.
1: Why not? Uh, Because accountability is about
0: justice and concrete steps towards ensuring non-repetition of actions. And this isn't about the U.S. and Iran. This is about what the international community, which is not the U.S., it's a community of nations,
1: should be doing to help the people of Iran. So what should they be doing? Like, I know you focus on civil litigation, for instance. Is that what you're thinking here, that we need more lawsuits? Essentially, what we need is robust action
0: to ensure that the violations that are happening in Iran are documented by an independent, impartial body, either housed outside of the UN Human Rights Office or within it. There are examples of prior mechanisms on Syria, on Myanmar, and for the crimes of ISIS. There are elements of an investigative mechanism that were set up for Ukraine, And these investigative mechanisms support future accountability processes.
1: So you're saying right now it's really important for the international community in a coordinated way to get the receipts for what's happening so that in future there can be a mechanism of accountability. But if we don't right now gather information about what's going on, there won't be a chance for that kind of accountability.
0: Exactly. There's a few ways that the international community can support. That includes ensuring that Iranians have internet freedom, and then there's wanting to ensure that regime officials cannot keep their assets offshore or flee to other jurisdictions to escape culpability in Iran. Other jurisdictions play a role in that in terms of ensuring that the money is not being stored there, especially for mid to lower level perpetrators. And then this third prong is really about the accountability piece. What the international community needs to understand is that ensuring that Iran is on a path to respect for human rights and democracy is actually critical for so many of the challenges to global peace and security.
1: Right, because Iran is an ally of Russia's and, you know, all of these things are connected.
0: Iran is sending weapons to Russia that they're using to fight in Ukraine. The Islamic Republic of Iran is involved in destabilizing the region. They are effectively running Iraq. You know, the list goes on and on. And so to really root out a sort of fundamentalist theocratic government in Iran and to respect what the youth are saying, which is that they don't want that and that they wanna be part of the international community, The whole world should be in support of the people of Iran right now. They're the winning bet. We saw that when there was Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and when Europe's security was threatened, all the institutions that are housed in Europe, so the ones that are meant to be global in nature, but which are seated in Europe, whether that's the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice, the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, they all quickly mobilized to ensure that every possible legal avenue was pursued. And so it's not acceptable to say that there's no time or bandwidth or lack of resources to do the same here. This uh, needs to be dealt with with a robust global response. I'm very glad that I see different countries um, you know, stepping up with statements and with taking Bilateral actions or their own actions to target some regime officials, but we need more.
1: Gisu, I'm really grateful for your perspective. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Gisu Nia is the director of the Atlantic Council's Strategic Litigation Project, that's where she focuses on international criminal and human rights law. And that is our show. Quick note for my real What Next heads. We had some technical difficulties on Tuesday. So if you missed that episode, go check the feed again. It should be there. And it's a goodie. It's Amy Walter of The Cook Political Report talking about this very weird midterm season. Alrighty then. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Madeline Ducharme, Carmel Delshad, and Mary Wilson. We are getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back in this feed, bright and early, tomorrow. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus